Welcome to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Jenna, and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institution. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Nick Garcia and Dr. Sergei Toshinsky, who are residents at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Nick is a first-year independent resident. He's originally from Miami, Florida. He completed college at the University of Florida and medical school at the University of Miami and his general surgery residency at the Kendall Regional Medical Center in Miami. His primary academic interests are aesthetic surgery and breast reconstruction. Sergey is a fifth-year resident. He's originally from Moscow, Russia. He completed college at Lafayette College and medical school at the SUNY Upstate Medical University. His primary academic interests are microsurgery and general plastics. Nick, Sergey, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you. So I'd love to get started by hearing a broad overview about your program. It's a fairly new program. I think we graduated our first integrated resident maybe two years ago. So maybe this program is about eight years old. We did have a fellowship for a while, for maybe 15, 20 years. It's the only program in the Twin Cities, which I think has a metro population of about 2 million people. So I think it provides a pretty good exposure to all areas of plastic surgery, from trauma to cosmetic to big oncologic reconstructions. And we also have a VA that's one of our sites. We take two residents a year, and we also have an independent program that I don't think we recruit every year. I think it just kind of depends on case volume, addition and subtractions from the program or sites that we cover. Right. So although it is a fairly new integrated program, the independent program has been around for a long time and we still maintain those two independent spots from ACGME. So those can be filled at will or, as Sergey said, with addition and minuses from the program as it is now. And so how much plastic surgery experience do you get in the first three years? So that honestly has changed since I've been a resident. It used to be that first two and a half years were basically general surgery and general surgery subspecialties. That has been reduced, it seems, by maybe like 75, 80% since I started. So for instance, interns... And second years, they're going to do at least 50% of that in plastic surgery. Third year has become sort of a transition year where we do a lot of not electives, but subspecialties outside of general surgery that are relevant to plastics like ENT, oral surgery, dermatology, and then probably three quarters or maybe 60% of that year is plastic surgery. So... We probably do all together maybe a year of general surgery. The rest are plastic surgery-related electives. And what's the experience like when you're on some of those non-plastics services? Well, my experience with general surgery was basically fairly similar to what general surgery residents go through. You are taking acute care surgery call. You cover the surgical ICU. You cover... Trauma surgery, so it's fairly busy. 
you certainly learn how to take care of sick patients and prioritize tasks and interact with all different areas of medical field. I feel like that's where I learn how to be just kind of uh, all around physician and not really feel overwhelmed, but more like learn how to prioritize things and get to the most important tasks on my list. And then non-general surgery experience, I guess it kind of depends on, you know, subspecialty and the month, but overall feedback has been, you know, very positive. On ENT, we work with facial plastics, surgeons doing a lot of Mohs reconstruction and rhinoplasties, but also have an opportunity to do, you know, head and neck reconstruction. We do oral and maxillofacial surgery rotation that allows us to do some orthognathic stuff and certainly get pretty comfortable about pulling wisdom teeth. For dermatology, we work with most surgeons who figure out the different skin cancer types and how they go about reconstructing the defects themselves versus consulting a reconstructive surgeon. So those are not hugely demanding services. It allows you to learn more about the field and try to draw parallels to plastic surgery field. And during that time, you are taking plastic surgery call. So you kind of just can complement your core plastic surgery training with these elective months. So you do take plastic surgery call when you are on non-plastic surgery rotations? Yeah, we take plastic surgery call starting third year. So the first two years is general surgery call, unless you are on plastic surgery rotation at that time. And then starting third year, it's plastic surgery call exclusively. Since we're already on that subject, can you go into a little bit of how call works? Call begins for the integrated residents starting on the third year, and it's pretty much dependent on the location. We've got our two main facilities, which is the University of Minnesota Hospital and also another hospital, Regions, which is in St. Paul, just about 15 minutes away. So I would say those are our two main hubs. And then we have several surrounding hospitals in each of those areas. But you would either be in the university call pool or the region's call pool at any given time. Call is a home call. We are pretty much always on call, well, always on call for general plastics. And then hand surgery, we're typically on call for, I'd say, about 80% of the time. Remaining 20% might be the hand fellows that, that take an overnight call. However, we would be on hand call throughout the day during normal clinical hours. A facial call is split between us and the ENT service. So we alternate weeks. And then every Monday we have a conference with our colleagues to discuss interesting cases and go over the patients of the week, kind of as a multidisciplinary meeting on Monday mornings, which is nice. Another thing I wanted to touch on, just to kind of piggyback off what Sergey said, as far as doing these rotations, general surgery rotations and, and the ENT and OMFS rotations, as integrated residents early, being an independent resident and coming in, I see some advantages of that. My colleagues have developed direct line communications with these other residents and even with the attendings themselves because they've worked with them so closely. So it really makes patient care that much better. I mean, if we have a question, we can just simply text anybody at any given time and have an answer right away. So throughout the years, as you go on, when you do these big head and neck reconstructions, you've got an open line to ENT 
or to whoever it may be to discuss cases that may be going on the next day or a few days. And it really is beneficial knowing these people and having relationships and having worked with them for several months once you do get to that point. So are you like on primary call starting as a three and then you have backup from more senior residents or how does that work? Starting third year, you're it. There's no no backups. Obviously, there is a learning curve to it. You do take plastic surgery call with a backup as a two. But starting third year, you're it. I mean, benefits obviously is that any cases that do come in in the middle of the night are your cases. So those are the times when you really start to learn how to do trauma cases. A lot of learning happens then. In terms of the sites, so you mentioned your main university hospital and regions, and then can you just briefly touch on some of the other sites that you rotate through? It's an interesting dynamic. The Twin Cities is fairly unique in a way that there's a lot of healthcare presence in this metropolitan area. So we do have a number of hospitals that serves this area. And to be honest, we have sort of some kind of relationship with all of them. So as we make our rotation schedules for the upcoming year, we just kind of look back and see what kind of experience is available. The core rotations have always been Regions Hospital, like Nick said, is our main level one trauma center where we take call. University of Minnesota Hospital is our flagship. It's level two trauma center, but you know, very busy oncologic hospital. North Memorial, is another core site. It's also a level one trauma center, but basically it's a different setup where different plastic surgeons in private practice kind of take call there and operate there. So it's a a little different dynamic and we don't take any primary call there. If there is something going on in the middle of the night, the attending will reach out to us. And for some reason, a lot of cosmetic surgery also happens there, even though it's a level one trauma center. Most of the staff there that we work with are private attendings that have their own private clinics, and that's usually where they operate. We kind of tag along with them to North Memorial to operate on those cases. And not to say that all we do is cosmetic there, because we also do big flap cases, also do hand reconstruction, things like that. But I would say the bulk of it would be outpatient type stuff. And then the VA is also our core site. We have only one plastic surgeon there, but he's developed kind of a unique practice. They're doing a fair bit of head and neck stuff, lots of oculoplastics. So definitely a valuable site. And then we just added Gillette Children's Hospital, a full-time rotation that will be official next academic year, even though we have gone there in the past, but never in a full-time capacity. So this is definitely a new development. Yeah, now we have a dedicated resident at Gillette Children's, and we'll get the bulk of our cleft lip and palates and and pediatric cases there. And then depending on the year, we go to HCMC, which is Hennepin County Medical Center, another level one trauma hospital in the Twin Cities. It kind of depends on if there are any big cases and some senior residents know about it, they would go there and do those cases. And since I have you both here, you could tell me a bit about the relationship between the independent residents and the integrated residents. Currently, I'm the only independent resident. As a first-year independent, I have three years total. So I kind of fall in line more or less with the PGY4 with their schedule. And the relationship has been fantastic. We lean on each other for different things. Obviously, my exposure to plastics before this is much, much less than 
my PGY4 equal. So we lean on each other and, and we help each other out. And I think the dynamic has played itself to be great in many ways. And I think it comes from the foundation of originally being a program that was traditionally for independent residents and then transitioned to the integrated model. But a lot of the independent factors are still there as far as teaching and, and attendings. In my time, there were a couple of independent residents ahead of me, but I think you're the first recruit that I've had junior to me. And everybody treats you like a PGY4, even though you're a PGY6. Well, so, and that's the thing. In, in the plastics aspect, I expect that. And I want to learn more. This is new to me. I feel, you know, like an intern all over again. And, and I'm sure many residents that are leaving general surgery and going into their first year of plastics feel the same way. You feel like an intern. You don't know much. You read the books, but you, don't, you haven't seen it. So it's one thing to read the books and to know the chapter, but then to see it in the ED by yourself is, is something completely different, how things are you know, actually done. So yes, I, I 100% feel like an intern many times, and I lean on my colleagues to kind of help me out. And then by the same token, with certain aspects, I, I feel like I can lend my unique uh, skill set to help others out as well. And, and that's kind of more so in the operating room, as I've had experience for six years now doing that. So I feel like I have a good grasp of operative technique and, and I can simply focus on actual plastic surgery, not necessarily technique as much because I've, I've already gained that in my training. I can help to share that with my colleagues. So I think the dynamic works out seamlessly, at least here at the University of Minnesota. And when I, when I do schedule Nick to be on primary day call sometimes, I'm full of guilt because he's a fellow. I'm going into a fellowship, and I certainly hope that I want to be on primary day call, but it has to be that way, but I, am, I feel guilty. And that's true. He has texted me <laughs> saying that he apologizes for having me on primary call as a PGY-6. But, so we have two residents per year, and even in my year, in the PGY-4 year, we've got one integrated resident and one independent, and I'm, I'm the independent. So in total, we have 12 residents, and we have many sites, more cases than, than we can fill even. So oftentimes, if you're at a site where there's only you and one other, you do have to share the load appropriately, and, and that's fine. As an independent resident, I need to be out there learning how to handle patients in the ED because these are things that you don't see often other than with the exception of a few weeks in a plastics rotation. So you do need to see that, and that is how you grow. And like we touched on earlier, I think you do learn when you're on call in the middle of the night on your own. To clarify, there's like two independent spots and two integrated spots per year. But there's been like a lull in taking independent residents. Right. So we fill, as of right now, we fill both spots for the integrated program. So two spots for each of the six years, so 12 total spots. And we can even supplement that with two more per year for independent. If there is an opening, we fill it to make it up to 12 for right now. There has been talks in the future about maybe expanding a little more. For right now, that's where we are. We like to keep it at the, at the 12 and two per, quote, year. You mentioned there are some hand fellows. So are there any other fellows that you work with? We mainly work with two hand fellows out at Regions Hospital, and they're through, through the Department of, of Orthopedic Surgery. And they're super helpful. They carry some of the overnight call for us at times, and they're always available to help and answer our questions. They provide us with some conferences and presentations on a monthly basis. So it's really an asset to have them around and, and to have them help us and, and us help them. 
And what's the mid-level support like? Well, at the university, we have a PA that can cover cases or clinics if we are both in a free flap or something like that. That's definitely been helpful. And at Regents, we do have PAs and MPs. They mainly cover clinic and when we're away at conferences or during our core curriculum, something like that. But they don't really routinely get engaged in the inpatient stuff. Oh, and there's a PA at the VA as well. That's super helpful to do orders and stuff like that. And are there any opportunities to choose your own electives? So either ones within your institution or opportunities to like spend a month somewhere else? We have done that in the past. It's not part of the curriculum routinely, but that's something that we are discussing about adding some protected elective time. Yeah, and it seems like if there's a rotation that you really want to be a part of, I don't think there would be any roadblocks to doing that as long as the credits fall within what's deemed necessary. For example, this coming year, I had some great feedback from my colleagues about the ENT rotation and how great their staff is and how they do a lot of septorhinoplasties, a lot of facial reconstructive plastic surgery. So they said that that really helped them with facial plastics and they suggested, you know, I look into it if I can. I noticed it wasn't in my independent normal schedule. So I spoke to the program director briefly. I mentioned it to him in the halls in passing. And uh, the next day I had an email from the coordinator and they had set it up. And I had a month of ENT. So now, as of now, I'm scheduled for a month of ENT with our ENT colleagues for, for next year. So I think it's something that could definitely be done. You just need to voice your interest in it. Yeah, we had a resident choose to go to Chang'an for a month. And everybody sort of was accommodating of that request. But it's not built in and known to all, all residents. That would kind of be like a full microsurgery rotation there at Chang'ung. Are there any opportunities for kind of like shorter mission trip experiences that happen regularly? Oh, mission trips, absolutely. Before COVID, there was definitely a recurrent trip, sometimes two trips a year. One like in the winter, I want to say. In the past, I've gone to the Philippines and Guatemala. And then there was another trip in the fall to Peru. I think it was expected that a PGY-5 and or 6 go, but obviously there's a moratorium on that, but I expect that to be back, you know, as soon as things calm down. I think Dr. Schubert was saying that's in the works to, to come back now this coming year, and it's something that seems like all the residents really enjoyed in the past, and they definitely want to get going again. And you mentioned a bit about where you get some of the cosmetic experience. So do you have any like dedicated cosmetic months or is it more peppered in when you're on different services? The way it is now, it's basically peppered in throughout your plastics rotations. And then during your chief year, there's more dedicated time for you to go into more private clinics with some of the adjunct faculty that only do cosmetic surgery. and you can go and operate with them if you want to gain more experience or you need to meet certain you know minimum requirements in a certain procedure so that's yeah typically in your chief year but i'd say for the most part everybody's meeting requirements before they begin the chief year so because it's just kind of sprinkled throughout the 
your core years. And in your chief year, are those like specific months? Yeah, if that's what you're interested in, it's, I don't think it's a requirement, right, by any means? Yeah, we sort of design our own curriculum. At that it, point, it kind of depends yeah. if that is your interest. But I'd say at least I've seen as many as six months. I've seen as few as two months. I think next year we do, I, I can't remember, even maybe two or three. Yeah, and I've got a couple now coming up in my resident level two year, which would be you know equivalent to PGY-5. I expressed some interest in it, so I was able to gain some access to some dedicated aesthetic and cosmetic clinics from our adjunct faculty. And is there a specific like chief cosmetic clinic where you can book your own cases and you kind of do all the perioperative management? There isn't at the moment. There is a potential to develop something like that that we are working toward. Having different health systems within the Twin Cities makes it somewhat difficult to pull off something like that. Having said that, I personally, and I know senior residents in the past, have done resident cases, but it, it would be more of a one-off thing, depending on you have a family friend or a referral from somebody that have seen you operate or however. So there is a capacity to do it, but it's not the traditional cosmetic clinic. Yeah, it's not built in, but you do have the freedom and the availability to do it. And the staff here is more than accommodating to, to do that with you if you do have a patient that's interested. We do run, I think it's, it's starting PGY4 here, the injectables clinic run by PGY4s and above. Uh, you can schedule your own patients and, and do them in clinic. And at the beginning of each year, we just had ours last year, the rising fours, fives, and six will all get together. We have some staff available. We use our, our product from our wonderful sponsors that donate our learning materials. And we are able to practice under the guidance of our staff that day. And, and leading up to it, we, we have conferences. And then once we do that, we have the ability to recruit our own patients and go ahead and, and do our own injectables in, in clinic as we see fit. So that's nice. And is there experience with gender affirmation surgery? Yeah, definitely. And that's something that University of Minnesota have made a focus for the last five years, I'd say. We've been doing top surgery for probably a decade or probably more. And uh, there's been a, like a strategic hiring of surgeons to expand that program. So at first we had uh, hired University of Minnesota that started doing bottom surgery. And I think he practiced three years or so, and he just recently departed for an opportunity in Utah. We do have a craniofacial surgeon that has developed a pretty active facial feminization practice, and we are going to replace the surgeon to do bottom surgeries as soon as possible. And the facial feminization craniofacial surgeon, we do those on a weekly basis. Those are very, get a hearty slate of those. And is moonlighting possible? It is possible. Starting third year, actually. Yeah. It's predicated on basically doing well enough on the in-service exam. If you do well enough on the in-service exam, if you pass that benchmark, you're granted access to go ahead and moonlight. And there's really no other roadblocks to that. You're free to do that as long as it doesn't interfere with your own clinical duties. And several of our residents do that. And I'm actually in the process of working out to, to do that as well.
So do you moonlight for like the ED or for an ICU? I haven't done it just yet, but you know, from what I've heard, it's mainly ICUs. I know the VA has a CV ICU that, that we often have residents moonlight there. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you know, obviously free to do whatever you feel comfortable doing. The two most common opportunities is general surgery call at the VA while you're also covering a surgical and cardiovascular ICU. And then the other opportunity is a covered trauma and cardiovascular ICU at the University of Minnesota. And how would you say your program manages resident operative autonomy? It's hard for me to compare. The only benchmark I have is from doing like away rotations. I think like anywhere else, it does depend. You certainly need to earn it. You know, you need to show interest, obviously, and potential. And it's kind of, you get to do more, the more you develop that relationship with the staff. Having said that, I think all the graduates that I've seen come before me are very skilled surgeons. I think our volume is fairly high. So I think operative experience as a whole is very strong. But, you know, probably like it should be. It's not a right. It's not given to you. You got to work hard and show you're capable. Yeah, I think like Sergey said, you have to earn it with each individual staff. They need to be able to trust you like anywhere else. You know, coming from a different program, coming from a different state and training elsewhere, I can kind of compare it. And definitely the autonomy here, I think, is more so than I've seen at other institutions. You really are given the opportunity to fly. The staff is very patient and they actually will teach you and, and stand there and watch what you're doing and, and help you. And then you know, from there, give you more and more responsibility as the cases roll in. They really do kind of let you fly. I mean, like the old saying, they'll let you stand on a box, put the noose around your neck, but they won't let you jump. They really do a good job of watching you become a good surgeon, knowing what your limitations are, helping you where you need help. And it shows our, our graduates really are able to go out into the field and practice right away. Many of them do without the need for, for fellowships. Many of them go on to fellowships as well. But even after one year here, I feel very comfortable with most of the bread and butter plastic surgery cases. And I think that's a combination of the very high volume and the fact that we are allowed to, to go ahead and, and do these cases when shown that we can be trusted. And what's the research experience like, both in terms of expectations and opportunities? Research is, I'd say, probably secondary to the clinical practice. So I think the minimum requirements essentially have a, a project that you complete, that you present on a national level, but the end of uh, residency. Lots of people do a lot more. It kind of depends if that's an interest of yours. But uh, having so many different sites that are all kind of different systems does make it difficult to do research at that site while you're on rotation at another site. So you kind of have to be pretty strategic about picking projects that are, can be completed within a certain time frame and knowing what the resources are at that site. But we do have concrete benchmarks that we're kind of expected to or nudged to complete per year. And it's pretty simple stuff. Like for example, the first year it's complete city training. Year two, it might be submit an IRB, things like that. And then by year six, you're expected to you know, have completed at least one project, which everybody's able to do. 
and present it as well. We do have quarterly research meetings, and these are you know very casual. A staff will usually host us at their house and, and order some food, and, and we just kind of sit around and, and talk about our projects one by one and, and what our goals are, so that at the next quarterly meeting, we can kind of be held accountable and, and make sure that we've met our goals. But you know, traditionally, those have been very fun meetings where we all kind of just socialize and, and hang out with the staff. Not intimidating in any by any means, but it really does help to keep you accountable. And then what's available in terms of support, both in terms of like statistics, for example, or then like when you're ready to go present your research at a conference? So again, it's site dependent. Regions Hospital, I'd say, from for plastics specifically, seems to have better research support than University of Minnesota. There we have a whole research group that supports general surgery and critical care research initiatives. And we've kind of joined that group. So they have a team that's available to do literature review, sort of apply for IRBs on your behalf, help with data collection and certainly data analysis. That's at Regents and it's very helpful. University of Minnesota, it's, I'm not sure I've not done research at that site. I do know that the Department of Surgery is very active research and initiatives. And I think a lot of those resources are available to plastics because we're a division within general surgery department there. And we also do have a stipend through that department as well for our research that we're free to use. So are you usually able to get funded if you present somewhere? Yeah. Is there any limitation on like how many conferences you could go to a year or anything like that? I don't believe so. I think if you are presenting, I mean, I definitely know uh, a resident a year or two ago that presented at like three different places and got funded all of them. And one of them was in like Aspen. And are there any other fun perks you'd like to mention? We get our funding for loops. That is included. We find a contractor that we like and get fitted for loops and provide the receipt. And that's not an issue. We get our loops. We're working on trying to get headlights as well. We don't get headlights yet, but we do get our loops. We do get textbooks stipend to a certain amount, and then we can go ahead and buy textbooks with that. It's a one lump sum sort of thing. We do get, I think during the third or fourth year, we get to go on a ASRM course. So like the American Society of Maxillofacial Medicine. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, it's sort of like an AO where you basically a weekend three-day course of doing different maxillofacial surgery. So there's a summer course and a winter course. So every resident goes to one of those and it's usually pretty fun. In Chicago or Southern California and, and you get to fly out there and do that for a few days. That's fun. I have that coming up actually. And then I think fifth and sixth years are automatically covered to go to ASPS, even if they're not presenting. And then the basic stuff, we definitely get, me you know, we get meal stipends, uh, meal cards. Uh, our parking obviously is paid for at the hospital, which I found that isn't something that's always paid for, actually. We have scrubs provided. Our embroidered white coats are provided as well. And what area would you say you come out with the strongest experience in upon graduation? One hand trauma. We're very good. I mean, the volume here is insane. I mean, I think we are stronger hand surgeons graduating residency than a lot of hand fellows that we've Absolutely. seen. And the nice thing about that, too, is that it's at one site. It's at regions, and that's where we take hand call. So you're not going to be on hand call the entire bulk of the year. When you go to other sites throughout 
your time, your year in residency, you're not going to be on hand call. But when you're at regions, you, you will see that and you will get very good at that. Like Nick said, Micro, very strong. We have a very active relationship with ortho and neurosurgery at regions doing lower extremity salvage and uh, cranioplasty coverage. And at the University of Minnesota, we do a lot of sarcoma, microsurgical breast reconstruction. I mean, transgender definitely used to be a focus before Dr. Kim uh, left. He just left maybe a, a month ago. So I don't know how that program will change because of that. I'd say those are two main focus that I think all of our graduates becomes just second nature. And how would you improve your program? We do have so many sites and I wish everything was more centralized so that things could be just coordinated and didn't have different expectations of things from site to site. It just fits my approach better. Some people love having a variety of settings to, to train at. I can see that as an advantage too, because there is a variety of settings or several different hospitals or several different ways that things are run at each of these different hospitals. And you kind of learn each one. So when you're out on your own, you're not used to this one robotic way of working. You're kind of more flexible and you see how, you know, different things are run at different places. You come out a little more flexible, although it could be a little bit of a headache while you're here because you're at one hospital working for three months, you go to the next hospital and everything's different. So you need to adjust to that quickly on the fly. But, you know, in the long run, I, th I think you're better for it. And then I'd say I wish that clinically all our faculty are so busy that research is not a focus of theirs. I get it. There's no time. So I wish that was not more of a requirement, but just made it kind of work that into their practice so that it's easier for them to do because everybody's clinics are full. Everybody's OR schedules are full. and. Uh, it's difficult to get a day off to focus on academic stuff. Maybe adding a, a, a bit of a built-in cosmetic aspect, more so than we have now. We do get a lot of cosmetic stuff sprinkled in, like we've mentioned before. And then later on in, in your more senior years, you get dedicated cosmetic rotations as you see fit. But I think it might be beneficial to have that kind of a more built-in sort of thing instead of having to kind of work it into your schedule. So I'd love to hear now a bit about your program leadership, so your chief and your PD. So Dr. Mahajan is our program director. I believe he's been program director now for six yeah. years. So he's been program director for some time. He is one of the most approachable people you'll ever meet. You would never know that he's the top dog in our program. He's just super down to earth, always listening to music in the OR, always asking you how your day is, talking to you about things other than surgery outside of the OR. Very friendly, very helpful. I moved out here with a family last year. I have a wife and a young child, and uh, he was super helpful and, and gave me his direct number. And we were texting back and forth about places to live and how to transition on the move. And he was even nice enough. He knows I have a young child and, and his kids are a little older now. And so he, one day he called me up. He's like, hey, I'm going to my storage shed. I've got a bunch of stuff for kids and I'm not going to need any more. Come with me. I'll pick you up and we'll go to the shed and you can get stuff for your child. And I was like, I, I mean, yeah, sure. That sounds great. So we went over to his storage unit and he gave me a bunch of stuff for the baby and he gave me a bike trailer. And so now we take advantage of that biking around the city and to all the different parks. When I was at the storage center with him, he, he saw somebody that he knew there another gentleman that has a storage nearby. And I was there with him and, and he introduced me as his colleague that he works with me. 
And that was kind of nice because I feel like most program directors or, or staff would say, yeah, this is one of my residents. But no, in his eyes, you really are his colleague and, and you really do just work with him. And he's incredibly brilliant. He's kind of a renaissance man. He does every, he used to fence at Yale. He knows a little bit of everything. He's an incredible surgeon. And I, I think he's a great leader for our program. So Dr. Mahajan is the head of the plastics department at Regents, the chief of the division at the University of Minnesota, because we're a division under the Department of Surgery, is Dr. Umar Chowdhury. And basically, he is more of an academic type, as you would expect from somebody at a university hospital, very active in resident education, and just he writes for the board exams and for the in-service. He's more of a traditional academic figure that you think a academic surgeon is like. But, you know, certainly there is so much to learn from him personally. That's the kind of person you want to be training you. We do clinic with him oftentimes at the university. And, and one of the things that I found interesting and nice when coming here, we do clinic with him and we see 30, 40 patients in, in a full day. And he will have you go in and see the new patients on your own, do a full HMP, and then present it to them, almost like you're a med student again, and then come up with your plan and what you would do. For one of the first days, I, I did that, and I was like, oh, man, now I got to go sit down and write this note. So I sat down. He's like, no, I don't want you to write any notes. You don't write any notes. The reason you're doing notes is something that just takes time. I can dictate them, which is great, and that truly is what he does. So you go, and you see all these patients, and you interview them, and, and you present them to them, and you talk to him about them. But he doesn't expect you to sit there and write clinic notes. He wants to know what you're thinking, how you're thinking, what you would manage in certain ways. And, and so you really spend your time thinking and looking things up and thinking critically about how you would handle patients if they were your own. And you do not spend time sitting in front of a computer writing notes for these patients, which is super refreshing. Well, what kind of a role do residents play in department decision making? So like picking new residents or choosing new faculty? Residents, certainly were very engaged. I think basically all residents, all years, have been involved in the interview process. So that's pretty cool. New hires, we are, I think, senior residents usually are invited to like go out to dinner with them and meet them on a personal level. If they do have a, like a presentation, then the rest of the residency body is invited to. But I feel like senior residents have quite a bit of role and say in the program's affairs. I don't know, because it's such a fairly new integrated program and things are always sort of, everybody's always trying to improve things. Certainly there's a very open line of communication to the leadership. And when choosing new residents as well, I think I mean, I've been told that the senior residents have as much say, it's a very democratic process, as much say as the program director themselves. How does your program promote diversity and inclusion and or help you develop into a culturally competent resident? I mean, that's a very good and relevant question. I mean, I think for the most part, University of Minnesota student body and resident body is very diverse. I don't know how that's come about. I think Minnesota has a very active graduate school and they kind of recruit from all over the world. So it is very refreshing to be in that very diverse body of students. We do have a huge Somali and Hmong population 
in the Twin Cities. Everybody doesn't really get phased when you need a phone interpreter or an in-person interpreter or have to explain to complex medical issues to the family. Or they just call me if they need to speak Spanish. Uh, I am part of the diversity <laughs> and inclusion. I'm a living example of this. So I think a lot of that experience is fairly informal. I think there is need to have more formal education, obviously in the light of everything that's happened in the last couple of years, particularly in the state of Minnesota. But as a medical body, I feel like we do pretty good. Tell me a little bit more about like the resident culture and what kind of residents fit well with your program. I think from my experience, it's 12 residents, right? And it only takes one sort of strong personality or achieve to kind of sway the culture one way or another. So, I mean, I think every year it's somewhat different. I mean, obviously, a lot, I think culture also kind of trickles down from the leadership. Overall, I think it's a pretty informal place. Dr. Schubert was the head of the department at Regis for decades, and he is a very modest, funny guy that you would just never think if you just meet him that he is this hotshot craniofacial surgeon. Yeah, book chapters everywhere. Right. A lot of that culture stems from him where, you know, you still you do good work, but also just enjoy yourself. That's sort of the overall, my impression, where people are encouraged to have interests outside of work and be happy with their families and be uh, good citizens and pursue interests as work. When you are at work, you're obviously expected to work hard and excel and learn, but it's not a rigid hierarchical structure where there's some surgeons that are unapproachable or anything like that. It's informal, but everybody is there for the right reason. It really is. It's informal, it's collegial, and I think that trickles down, as you said, from the leadership, Dr. Schubert for decades, Dr. Mahajan now, is, as I had touched on earlier, is very informal, yet incredibly brilliant and, and a fantastic surgeon, and, and people will kind of want to emulate that. He's got a great outside life. He's you know, always out with his family, and he encourages the same from us. We're not in the hospitals. Oftentimes, the residents will get together, and, and we rent a boat on the lake. We go on hiking trips. A group of uh, residents, including Sergey, went on a ski trip just last year. We are having a housewarming party this Friday at my place. Jenna, you're welcome to come. That'll give you really some very inside perspective for your premium account. <laughs> Put that on the premium <laughs> account. Thank you. I love. I wish I could take up the offer. That's awesome. Does your program have any experience taking IMGs or like otherwise non-traditional residents? So Victor, our intern. He went to med school in India, then came and did uh, basically two years of research at the University of Minnesota. That's how he kind of exposed to our program and then applied and went through the interview process like everybody else and ended up matching here. Definitely every year we interview a handful of IMGs, yeah. no doubt about it. And I, th I think that speaks to the diversity and inclusion aspect of, of the culture of the University of Minnesota program where... You really are judged on the quality of your work and, and your character, first and foremost. Yeah. And then your accolades, be it fantastic accolades or not the traditional ones or whatever they may be, is kind of secondary. 
you're judged mainly on, on the quality of your work, your character, how you get along with the team, you know, what the fit is like. And I think it's really done well to create a, a fantastic culture in our program of welcoming, of acceptance, of overall resident well-being in many ways. I, I definitely expect that to continue here. I am an IMG myself. I did a year and a half down in the West Indies and, and then did my, my clinical rotations out in Chicago for some time. I did an inter internship at the University of Miami for general surgery and, and completed my training just next door at Kendall Regional. I'm not going to lie, it was definitely much more difficult to gain a fellowship position with my resume. That being said, I knew my scores had to be higher than others in order just to be judged at the same level even. But like I said before, the University of Minnesota really does look at your work, your references, your character, how you, you act in a team first and foremost. And I think that really is the recipe for, for a good surgeon and somebody to be a good pillar of the community. And that's really been the recipe the University of Minnesota has had for, for continuously pumping out these fantastic surgeons. And again, fit is important. So Nick was a shoe-in once we met him. <laughs> like a puzzle piece. So now for this last part, I'd love to talk a bit about how residents live. Maybe three quarters rent. Are most people in like houses or apartments? Definitely both are present and it kind of depends on if you have a family or what you want to do. Certainly all options are available. The Twin Cities is very affordable if you wanted to get a house and have a family. But, you know, if you are single and moonlight, you can move to a fancy apartment with a pool. To piggyback off what Sergey said, I think being in the Twin Cities has a huge advantage for that. Minneapolis is your major metropolis. You've got these high rises. You've got the apartments with the pool. You can walk most places if you need to. And obviously, you also have the suburbs. But then the neighboring city of St. Paul is also more of a quiet, family-oriented type city. So you kind of do get the best of both worlds in those aspects. For example, I'm renting a house now in St. Paul in a great neighborhood, paying average rent, uh, and, and the program director lives a block away from me. And Sergey's here in his big high-rise with his beautiful cabana and pool in metropolitan Minneapolis, living the dream. So you mentioned that you can either live in like St. Paul or Minneapolis. Where do residents live kind of in relation to the hospitals? Like how long does it take you to get to most sites? So Minneapolis is west and St. Paul is east. And so I live kind of on the west side of St. Paul, so almost in between. And it takes me less than 15 minutes driving to get to either of our core sites, which is university and regions. North Memorial is a little further, but that's a little further for everyone that's north of Minneapolis. That'd be about a 25 minute drive. And then the VA is probably about 15 minutes for me as well. So all in all, I'm not spending more than 15, 20 minutes usually in the car maximum. This metropolitan area is fairly efficient with their highway system. So from my experience, the most I've ever driven from side to side when I would round at the VA, then have to go to north, which is basically is like going from southeast to the northwest across the entire Twin Cities. That's half an hour. That shouldn't have happened that weekend, but it did. You would never drive more than, you know, 20 minutes to a site. In traffic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right now it takes me five minutes to get to the University of Minnesota. And is it necessary to have a car? Yeah, I would think so, yeah. I have tried biking to work before and it's just not safe. Too many potholes. 
and it's too dark. What's the breakdown of residents being single, married, and or having kids? So I'd say about 7% of our residents are married with kids. So I'm the only one that, that has kids. I think I'm the only married one. We have another engaged resident and then others in long-term relationships. And then uh, really others in short-term relationships. <laughs> so we've got, we've got good representation on all fronts. So we have, for incoming residents, they could relate to pretty much any of us because we have all representations here. How are the winters? They're cold. I'm not going to lie to you, Jenna. There's always a three-week stretch, I'd say, in the five years, end of January to early February, where those three weeks where it does not get above zero, which actually is either like the most productive three weeks that I experience <laughs> the entire year. So I personally do not mind the winter. I, you know, obviously I grew up in Russia and spent some time in New York. Other people like thrive in it. Minnesotans are a little crazy. Everybody still plays hockey on the lakes, really hardcore anesthesia residents ride their fat tire bikes around. But, you know, luckily that really extreme stretch is fairly short. Other than that, it's probably between freezing to maybe like 10 Fahrenheit or something. It was a big change for me coming from Miami. To be honest, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Everything here is designed knowing that it gets very cold. So oftentimes you don't have to go outside much. And again, as long as you're protected and, and you're bundled up, it's not that big of a deal. But that being said, they do make the best of it. There's all sorts of winter activities. A lot of our staff goes cross-country skiing. I've been dying to go ice fishing. I haven't gone ice fishing yet. Ice skating. There's a park near our house, a baseball field near our house that they actually just flood the entire baseball field with water and it freezes and then they have free ice skates there and you just go and ice skate around for free and that's pretty cool. I'd never seen anything like that. So it's fun and, and if you're going to be here for some time and get your training, it's nice to, to experience something different in that aspect as well. It's Mr. Positivity here. <laughs> My car did not start five times during the three-week stretch. One time when I finished the free flap at midnight, but it's fine. But that was an experience that he learned from. Yeah, and realized yeah. that no, I, <laughs> maybe I, don't park outside, park in the garage. Right. Is there covered parking at all the hospitals? Yeah, it's covered, but not heated. Every hospital has garages, and, and we have access to all those garages, and it's paid for. My parents told me to bring my car battery inside, and I still don't know how to do that. What else do you like about living in Minneapolis slash St. Paul? I mean, I honestly, I think it's a great place to live temporarily. I think the summers are really incredible. It gets hotter here than it does in Miami. Last week, it was 100 degrees almost every day. The lake is amazing. Yeah. There's boat rentals. There's windsurfing. Yeah, there's last summer, some residents joined a boat club, and that was a fun summer. It's super green. There's parks and it's very pretty. There's lots of outdoor activities, tons of lakes. Everybody goes running and biking around. I would go and set up my hammock on the lake and do research, sometimes nap, <laughs> sometimes at the same time. It is actually a wonderful place. It's very efficient. You're really not bothered by little things that makes your daily life unnecessarily difficult. So you can just kind of focus on your work and whatever things drives you. You really do take advantage of the summers here. There's parks on like every corner. I mean, there's just parks everywhere here. And of course, lakes, as everybody knows, but the lakes are amazing. I mean, just for our graduation, Dr. Schubert hosted us all at his house and he has a 
house on the lake and, and he's got all sorts of paddle boats and activities out there for us to do. And, and that was a good time. And on the weekends, we rent pontoon boats and go out on the boat. And There is two national parks uh, within driving distance, the uh, Voyagers and Isla Royale. And then there's Boundary Waters Canoe Area in northern Minnesota, where it's basically... I don't know how many lakes, but basically you just get canoe from lake to lake and for, for weeks if you wanted to, if you could spend all of your vacation balance on a canoe trip. It's named actually a dark sky sanctuary of the world. So it's one of the darkest places on earth. It's incredibly beautiful there. Northern Minnesota, like the whole like Lake Superior lakefront is just stunning. It's kind of like Big Sur and Northern California, just cliffs and just a huge lake. Honestly, yeah, Minnesota is very natural. It's got so much natural beauty. It's, it's pretty astonishing. Yeah, you won't run out of stuff to do here. And Delta is has a huge hub here, so they fly nonstop to a lot of fancy destinations. Oh yeah, it's very easy to get places from here to travel for the weekend off or whatever you may be doing. Yeah. Can you talk about briefly how the program supported you in the fellowship decision-making process and matching process? So, you know, I'd say statistically maybe 50%, maybe a little bit more go to pursue fellowships. A lot of our faculty are fellowship trained. So certainly it's very easy. Again, everybody's so approachable that it was very easy to get informal advice like, hey, like, is this worth it? How big of a deal is it? So to me, it was fairly simple decision. I don't have a young kid and pressure to start working or any like financial pressure so this is something that i wanted to do and get more experience so i'm going to be doing microsurgery at cleveland clinic and doing some fairly intense academic stuff and being exposed to things that i've not seen in in this program so any final thoughts about either your program or the process of choosing a residency one of the main things to look for is, as we kind of touched on before, the fit. Make sure that the staff is approachable. They're people that you would want to talk to, not in great circumstances necessarily, when you need to talk to them in the middle of the night about something horrible or some complication on their own patient that they're not going to want to hear. You want to make sure it's people that you know are understanding and are there to train you and are willing to help you out. And that's kind of what I've found here. The staff is approachable. The residents are all friendly. Everybody's always willing to help. It takes the nerves out of training in many ways. It lets you focus on actually doing the right thing and learning and becoming a better surgeon itself. So I think that's a huge part of it. I'm a you know big believer in intuition and instinct. So just go with your gut when it comes to program rankings. Don't overthink it. There's just no way... To weigh everything appropriately is just, there are too many factors. But, you know, I think if you follow our instincts, I think it'll be a good fit for you so that you can be the best you can be. And how can interested students find out more about your program? I think both of our emails are honestly on the University of Minnesota residency website. I've certainly gotten emailed by random strangers and I reply to them and set up time to talk. So... I think I just got really lucky matching at this site because it's been a wonderful experience. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service 
and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.